if you accept the Ski Magazine rankings, the top service resorts are the Deer Valleys of the world, the Snow Basins of the world, the Sun Valleys of the world, places that they're going to charge you an arm and a leg and they're not going to apologize for it. And then if you look at the top resorts in the value category, you're looking at the other end of the spectrum. You're looking at Loveland, you're looking at A Basin, you're looking at Targhee, some really cool places to ski, but don't have any of the bells and whistles. Meanwhile, here we are, you know, within the last, I don't know, six, seven, eight years, we've managed to crack the top five in both of those categories in Ski Max. We're like a unicorn in that way. Welcome to the storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester, going big today and visiting the most affordable, modern, big mountain ski area in the West. Before we dig into that, a quick reminder to pop over to stormskiing.com to subscribe to the Storm Skiing newsletter. Every time I release a new podcast, it will go directly to your inbox, along with an article that includes thousands of words of additional context on this conversation, along with maps and stats on the ski area. The podcast, by the way, is just a small part of the storm. In the Storm Skiing newsletter, I am breaking down the world of lift served skiing with a minimum of 100 articles every single year. Stop getting your ski news from Facebook. Get it from the Storm Skiing newsletter instead. You can also follow the storm on Twitter and Instagram at Storm Ski Journal. A quick word from my partner. Today's episode is sponsored by CORE. Oregon State University's Center for the Outdoor Recreation Economy, the industry's premier workforce development partner. Ski season is in full swing, which means more riders, and more riders means more lift maintenance issues. I know a lot of you listening are leading large teams of lift maintenance pros, and I know you want them to succeed. Well, this is your solution. CORE's online ski lift maintenance training gives new and experienced lift mechanics the skills to become the technicians your resort needs. This self-paced, interactive, hybrid online training covers lift systems and operations, safety standards, preventative maintenance, and full NSAA Level 1 requirements. It is the most affordable lift maintenance training in the industry and includes industry expert sessions, on-site assessments, and all course materials. Sign up your lift maintenance team at beave.es backslash storm so they know we sent you. That's B-E-A-V dot E-S backslash storm. Episode 120, Whitefish Mountain President Nick Columbus. Here's what it will cost you to walk up to the ticket window at the 10 largest U.S. ski areas this Saturday, March 18th. 2023 in order from largest to smallest park city utah $269 palisades tahoe california $269 big sky montana $239 tram access not included Vail mountain colorado $275 heavenly california and nevada $225 mount bachelor oregon $160. Mammoth, California, $229. Snowmass, Colorado, $224. Keystone, Colorado, 
$235. And Whitefish, Montana, $94. Hmm. One of these things is not like the others. Why? Why does Whitefish stand alone among large Western ski areas in the U.S. in offering affordable skiing for whoever decides they want to walk up to the ticket window that day? Is it because Whitefish is less developed than the others? Nope. Whitefish sports four high-speed chairlifts, including a new six-pack for the 2022-23 ski season. Is it because Whitefish delivers a less interesting ski experience or less snow? Not really. Whitefish averages a respectable 300 inches of annual snowfall and offers massive swaths of glades, bowls, and every other kind of terrain you can imagine. So, what gives? Why is Whitefish this outlier in skiing's race to the bottom of the affordability rankings? Well, in a ski industry obsessed with consolidation and conformity, Whitefish has decided to do things differently. You will not find the mountain on the Epic, Icon, Indy, or Mountain Collective passes, even though Whitefish could join any of the four with one phone call. And even as its peers blew past the $100 lift ticket mark a decade or more ago, Whitefish has yet to cross that threshold. What's behind all this? Why is Whitefish still committed to principles of affordability for walk-up skiers that the rest of the Big Mountain West has pretty much abandoned? As you can imagine, there's a pretty interesting story to it and a pretty thoughtful person leading the way. And that is who we'll hear from today. Let's go. My guest today has been the president of Whitefish Mountain Resort, Montana, since 2021. Whitefish sprawls over roughly 3,000 acres of terrain, served by 15 lifts on a 2,353-foot vertical drop. The ski area averages nearly 300 inches of snow per season and is one of the most affordable big mountain ski resorts in the country. He joined Whitefish in 2007 as its head of marketing and sales, and prior to that, spent several years working at Killington, Vermont. Nick Columbus is my guest. Nick, welcome to the storm. It is so great to connect. How is 2023 treating you so far? You know, so far, so good. We've had our ups and downs for sure, but, you know, season to date, we are right almost exactly where we had budgeted to be from a visitation perspective, and, you know, revenues are following pretty closely as well, so... Things are going going very well. Uh, it is the ski industry, so it, it never it never goes exactly per plan, but um, but things are coming out in the wash pretty well so far. How about from a snowfall point of view, Nick? Have you been getting in on that snow train that's just been hammering parts of the West since November? You know, we haven't been on that on that at least not the last week or so. That flow that's hit hammering California that's dipped a little south of us. But you know, we got off to a fantastic start you know our, our summit base depth is over 70 inches which will you know we'll close the mountain with over 100 inches up there in any given typical year but we're already you know over 70 inches up there now and we just got off such a great start and it, it's a big part of our success i think so far this year is you know i call it a once maybe twice a decade event where we can open most of the mountain on opening day and, and this year was one of those years so it was it was a good feeling it's, it's a lot easier to do it that way than, than downloading and partial <laughs> openings and closures and that sort of thing. 
that's interesting what you just said about closing with 100 inch base depth at the top. Nick, what, what does drive that closing date? We do see a lot of mountains like Snowbird or Palisades Tahoe or Mammoth or a basin that'll push the season into June or July. It sounds like you may have that caliber of snowpack. What drives you to close the mountain when you do on a typical season? You know, we just, people lose interest. Um, even our, you know, even our pass holders, obviously it's easy for the cynical, you know, local or industry um, type person to, to say, well, you're just closing because you don't not making any money. But even our pass holders, they're ready to move on. I feel like skiers in general are an optimistic bunch and they're always looking forward to the next thing. But especially around here, you know, and maybe part of this, the dynamic of this being such a warm weather recreational area with the Glacier National Park and the lakes and the rivers, they're ready to put their boats in the water and they're ready to get their fishing gear out and they're ready to get, get on the golf course. And just, it's an optimistic group of people, but they're ready to move on to the next thing. What is that closing day for 2023, Nick? April 9th. All right. So plenty of season left. So we'll get a lot more into whitefish in a minute here, Nick. I did want to back up here and just talk about your skiing background and your skiing history because you have an interesting story. So talk about where you grew up and if you grew up skiing in a skiing family. Yeah, it's, it is interesting. You know, so I'm one of five kids. I'm the second oldest. I'm the only boy. So I've got four sisters. My story matches a lot of what I've learned about the industry over the years. And that's, you know, I grew up in, in Colorado. I grew up in Evergreen, Colorado, so the foothills above Denver. And we're talking 70s and 80s. I think a lot of people are familiar with the Evergreen area now. It's it's not, <laughs> it's very different, but everything changes over time, right? That was a long time ago, but it's a different deal up there now. But both of my parents have very strong, passionate backgrounds in skiing. And both of my parents exited the sport very quickly after starting a family. And that's, that is something that the, that the industry has battled over the years is you have that, like those young families, you take time off to start a family and, and a lot of, a lot of people don't come back to the sport after that. So my, my family mirrors that kind of well, um, you know, being in the front range of Colorado and basically halfway to, to the ski areas from Denver, you know, when you're in Evergreen, it was very readily available to us, but it, 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 it's funny for as passionate as my parents were about, about the sport, as close as all those skiers were to where we literally grew up. I've skied with my dad maybe twice in my life and I've skied with my mom maybe a couple more times than that, but they would just stick us on the Buffalo ski club, ski bus in El Rancho right there off I-70 and uh, off we'd go to Winter Park and skied a bunch at Loveland as well and A Basin and you know, we moved to Denver when I was in high school and moved, you know, I went to college in Boulder. So, you know, that was back in the days of, I think I paid 150 bucks for a season pass at Vail when I was in college. Wow. You know, so wow. it was pretty, getting into that buddy pass phase, but very affordable for students. So, so what was it, what do you think kept your mom and dad from going? And, and, and I ask this only because it relates to the way that you run whitefish today and that it's very affordable and we can get into that a little more later but was it just they just had a lot going on was it one of these things where it was just price prohibitive to haul the whole family out was it logistical like what what do you think was keeping them from something they love so much i think it was logistics it it was less price than than logistics of, of five kids they shifted their lives like so many do to be about the kids and it was way easier to just stick us on the bus than it was to take the time to, and, and, and remember, I'm the second oldest and there was a little bit of a gap. I think I must've been a problem child because they waited five years before they had my next sister. But, um, so, so there was just, it was a long period of time too, where they were just very making adjustments to their own lifestyles for, for the sake of the family. 
So having grown up on the Front Range, and I'd imagine you're still pretty plugged into the various issues that have arisen around Front Range skiing and and getting down I-70 and uh, just massive population growth and traffic buildup. Just what are your thoughts on that, Nick, as you look back to where you grew up and how it's changed and what that means for skiing and, you know, to your point, to families trying to ski? Uh, you know, I do still have a lot of friends and family living in the Denver area, and it's it is it's kind of sad because there are a lot like there are a lot of folks, good friends of mine who were really good skiers and loved it that are just like we just don't do it anymore just because of that that I seventy hassle factor, and it's it's unfortunate because even where we are seemingly pretty remote spot up here in the northwest corner of Montana, so close to Canada, feels like a million miles away, and, and we do things very differently, I think, here than, than a lot of those bigger ski areas in Colorado and Utah and California. Um, but w- when Colorado and Utah are having a good snow year and a good ski year, that helps the entire industry. And so conversely, when, when the headlines are about traffic on I-70 and or a low snow year in those areas or housing in those bigger areas, Jackson's and the Park Cities and the Summit Counties, you know, those headlines drive a lot of the decisions the rest of us have to make just in reaction. It's interesting to watch how those trends may benefit some of the more remote ski areas like yours as as that traffic builds up. I mean, do you see people who are just looking to get out of that and, and they and they leave Colorado or Utah or Tahoe behind and they start looking and, and find whitefish? You know, when we saw it, for, we always thought we should see it, see it, and we saw a little bit of it. And when it when it finally hit us with a two by four was that first year post COVID, that 2021 season when ski areas opened around the country, but they had parking you know reservations and lift ticket reservations and all these different things. And and here in Montana and in Whitefish in particular, we took a we took a different approach to that and, and left it kind of open. And the perception was that Montana's more wide open and maybe a little safer. And we saw a ton of trial from those other areas that we just, it was like on steroids. Yeah. So you've, you've seen a lot of change, no doubt, and are witnessing it firsthand now every day. But let's go back here. Nick, what was your first job in skiing? My first job in skiing was as a group services representative at Killington Resort in 1996. So you studied communications in college. What was that up in Vermont? Is that where you'd gone out to Vermont for college or did you end up at Killington through a different track? Yeah, it was a different track. You know, like I said, I went, I went to the University of Colorado. Um, so I was kind of a, a front range guy pretty much through and through. Just ended up in the Northeast that summer after I graduated, kind of randomly visiting friend and poking around out there and knew I wanted to get in the ski industry for work. And so I had resume in hand and one thing kind of led to the next and uh, that group sales job opened up at Killington and I jumped on it. I mean, that's so interesting to me. As someone who grew up in Colorado, what were your first impressions and first thoughts on New England skiing? Because Vermont has a tremendous ski culture. Colorado has a tremendous ski culture, but they're very different. And the style of skiing is very different and the skiers are different. So how did that hit you when you moved to New England and, and absorbed that culture? It, it really is a great question. Maybe it's my kind of attitude or outlook on things, but like I remember when I first got to Killington that summer and was just kind of poking around, 
I'm going to look it up going, oh my gosh, this is legit. You know, like from the Killington Road, looking up at that, at Killington Peak, I'm like, this is the real deal. Like this terrain is impressive. You know, the vertical is, is real back there. And, you know, the acreage is smaller, of course, but a lot of it's just because the density of the, the forest and whatnot. But I was kind of like, wow, this is awesome. And people, everybody else was looking at me like I had seven heads. Like you're from where? You're coming here? You're going the wrong way, you know? Um, it, truly. Like, and so it, I think it was a bigger impact on, on everybody else than it was on me at first. I, I can tell you, I, I, I remember where I was standing when that first January 40 degree rainstorm came through Killington. <laughs> um, I'll never forget that. It, it was a phenomenon unlike anything else I'd experienced in my life, just watching the, the snowpack get, literally get washed away. Wow. Where were you standing? In the, in the snowshed parking lot. <laughs> um, absolutely. <laughs> like, what is happening? Like, it was just, just watching it wash away was, was nuts. But I tell you what, like, I loved it. I, I love my time in New England. I, I think Vermont is awesome. The other thing that was a kind of a big deal for me there was it was, I just thought it was the coolest place to be. The people are there are amazing. You have to be a hearty, good human being to, to weather this industry in New England. You just have to be, you have to be a good person to do that. But the swings, not only the swings in the weather, but the swings, of, especially at Killington, you know, you're, you're quintessential New England five days a week and then the weekend hits and you are New Jersey North. Um, and it's like, it, it, you're, it's like you're living in a different place all of a sudden for 48 hours. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. And not any, I'm not, no knock on New Jersey. Like it was fun. And, like it was crazy. But I was like, Oh my gosh, this place just it turns on a dime, you know? Yeah. Yeah. There, there is nothing like Killington. So talk about your time there, Nick. You know, I'm, I'm really curious. There's a couple places that keep coming up, a couple ski resorts that seem to have these really good, sort of quote, coaching trees for lack of better term. In other words, a lot of current ski industry GMs and leaders started at those resorts. One is Mount Snow, and that keeps coming up over and over. And then another one is Killington. And and a lot of the folks that you worked with at the time there, like Steve Wright up at Jay, were, I believe, there at the same time. So talk a little bit about the folks that you worked with there and and how they have impacted your career. Yeah, you're right. And what's interesting about you mentioned Mount Snow and Killington and like, so I started at Killington in, in again, in the fall of 96 and ASC purchased Killington from SKI in that summer. And then ironically, then I left in 07 and powder purchased Killington the spring of 07, like weeks after I left. So I basically worked at Killington the entire span that American Skiing Company owned it. But um, SKI was Mount Snow and, and Killington. And I, and I believe the purchase happened at the same time, right? That um, ASC bought Mount Snow and Killington from SKI at the same, that summer of 96. So, and, and there, there really is that, that tree, that coaching tree, like you, to use your term, out of Mount Snow and Killington, those guys, and I mean, it's, it goes on and on and on. The Foster Chandlers of the world, Alan Wilson, Rich McGarry, Chris Diamond, you know, so many big, big names that, that made their way around the industry came out of that zone. And it was, the culture is good and it is strong. And like, I have zero regrets about my time spent there because I learned so much about this industry. And I look back on it now and I'm like, it's hard enough here, but I like, yeah. I don't think I'm tough enough to go back. <laughs> like, I, I, you talk about Steve Wright. He, we were joking about it the other day. He and I did start. We joke, you know, he got his job at Killington because my homeboy stinks. 
that was John Clifford's thing. He's like, well, you he wanted to hire me as a snow reporter, but he's like, yeah, your phone voice is terrible. So I'm going to make you groups go over and hire Steve as a snow reporter. So we did. We, we started there at the same time and, and, and worked there for a long, mm-hmm. long time. And, and Steve's, uh, Steve's wife started that fall as well. Nice. So you spent a good, it sounds like a good 11 years there. Just talk about that time. You know, obviously you had a lot of different experiences and moved up as you were there. So talk about that 11 years and then what ultimately drew you out to Montana and Whitefish in 2007? Yeah, so it was it was nine out of 11 years. I worked two years in group sales and then I left for two seasons to go back to Colorado and get a graduate degree and uh, and actually kind of started to try to make a go of a, a dot-com in the ski industry that, that failed and then wound up right back at Killington. My first job back, so after I got the graduate degree, I went back to Killington in 2000. That, um, I went back as the community relations and summer marketing manager. And ASC was making a big investment in summer activities across their portfolio of resorts. And, and like any ski area, got your town and resort dynamics that need to be managed. And so it was kind of a custom built role, but it fit my personality pretty well and it um and i wanted to get back on the marketing side of things maybe not so much in the sales side of things so i took that job in 2000 and just asc was funny in there with their titles and the way they did things over the years and they really tried to homogenize the marketing departments across the, the different resorts so um eventually you know i just I, I kept kind of wiggling my way through different positions in the marketing department at killington until um, i became the brand manager there towards the end and went through when we when we kind of rebranded Killington. We've kind of gotten away from the beast of the east kind of stuff over the years. We tried to soften it and kept came to realize that maybe that wasn't the right move. So we rebranded and kind of went back down that path of, you know, like let's be hardcore. Let's be Killington, you know. And that all that change over the years really I don't know, it helped. You know, you become pretty resilient and, and working there anyway, you become resilient. And that's like, it's like that's part of the culture. You know, I remember my first few winters there, it wasn't two full hands that you had days off across the course of a season that went from October through May. Yeah. And, just, and that was that was it. Just people just, that's what I learned there most of all. You just work hard. That's just that's just what it is. It's, the industry is hard, and that's what we do at Killington is you just work hard. So how did the opportunity for Whitefish come up? And I, I'm curious about the appeal of it to you. And, and, you know, you mentioned the homogenization with American Skiing Company. Was the opportunity to go work somewhere that was independent and could stand on its own and you could operate without that outside influence, sometimes from folks who mean well, but don't necessarily have positive impact? Was that part of it? How did that opportunity come up and, and what appealed about it to you? So, you know, as much as I love New England, I have to say, and I really did love it. And I love the people there still to this day. It never did totally feel like home to me. Part, part of that was just the climate. You know, I was used to this kind of higher elevation, drier climate kind of deal. And But I also knew that that there was not going to be any way I was going to make it in the ski industry in Colorado. You know, it, it had already gone too far, you know, livability-wise. Mm-hmm. Um, it just, it never felt right. But, but a headhunter actually was the one that called me up about the whitefish job. And it happened, it just happened to coincide with ASC's demise. And um, <laughs> Killington was absolutely on the, it was for sale. And, and so it was, it was a fairly, my last year or two there was a fairly uncomfortable time in terms of like wondering about your job. And it really got to that point in that 06, 07 season. And so that's where Whitefish 
kind of it all kind of came together like okay yeah this is moving back west but it's it's a place where you could still get in and afford to buy a house there and, and raise a family there and, and do all those things let's get to the western half of the u.s and you know i might not have a job in a few months so it, it kind of all came together fortunately at the right time so you get to whitefish and you're working under former president dan graves as i mentioned you took the top job at the resort in 2021 but you were there for you know, 14 years before that and under dan's leadership the resort transformed from what from what i understand you can correct me if i'm wrong here was a somewhat marginal operation business-wise to a really sustainable strong business talk about dan's legacy nick and how he orchestrated this turnaround at whitefish yeah, so Dan's a, well, first of all, he's like, he's more big brother to me than he is mentor at this point, for sure. And he is a very analytical human being. And he he takes nothing personally in the job environment. And he just, it was very easy in his brain to look at the numbers and to observe the operation and strip away things that were inefficient. And it was hard for a lot of people especially in the beginning, because it felt personal to them. But to him, it was never that way. And that was a big lesson I learned from him is we're just here trying to, to make the best decisions we can. And he would say a lot. He would say things like, they're just facts. You have good facts, you have bad facts, and they're just facts. And we got to take them and we just got to adjust and we got to do things. And so we stripped away a lot of the inefficiencies that can creep into a, to a ski area. In my mind, that's really at the core of his legacy is, is that, like what? What were some of those, for example, Nick? Um, we had a we had a really goofy cat skiing operation. Okay. That didn't benefit. You know, it was like you, we were asking people to pay for something that they could hike to faster than the cat could move back around and get them to. Um, but, <laughs> okay. but it sounded cool, right? Um, yeah. You know, we we did night skiing, longer hours, more nights, and you know, just looking, it was pretty easy to look at the data and just say this is just not. People don't people don't have night skiing on Tuesday, for example. So stripping that back to a Friday Saturday kind of an operation, and, and as you can imagine, the the list of those kinds of decisions you can make across a ski area are infinite. So you know, working under Dan for fourteen years and watching the resort evolve, what did you learn from him? And talk about the influence he's had on you as far as your leadership style goes, and when it was time for you to take that top job and run Whitefish. What do you hear Dan saying in the back of your mind as you're going about your day-to-day -day and, and keeping this machine moving? Well, it's things like, you know, good facts and bad facts and just, it, it's, not, it's not personal and we're just here trying to make the best decision and it's transparency and he, wait for an analyst and a person who spent so much time behind closed doors in his career, you know, just looking at spreadsheets and making hard decisions, he was not afraid to share those. And so it's that kind of stuff. And he has a, he had a saying too, which I thought always thought was hilarious. It's like, get the, get the old fish out of the fridge. If it smells, just get rid of it and deal with it right away. And don't, don't let it get to a point where it smells. And so it really created this culture of we just get together and we make decisions. Yeah, we're looking at on a weekly basis, we're airing out our financials for the week in front of all of our supervisors and managers across departments. And in a different environment, it would be very easy for a, a retail manager if their department struggled to sit there and feel defensive and angry. But it's just not set up that way. It's, it's just set up to where, hey, listen, we're all just collectively trying to move the ball forward. So business is business. And, and, and it seems like Dan's legacy 
at least from the outside, Nick, the way I see this is he really modernized the ski area, right? And and modernized the lift fleet and, and brought it up to really a, a national destination resort. As you look ahead to your tenure here and the time ahead, how do you want to build on that legacy and evolve Whitefish? Like, What's your vision for the ski area long-term? Yeah, so you're right. A lot of those hard decisions that were made and those efficiencies that were gained were, were kind of early on. And in our time, he started in December of 06 and I started in March of 07. So our careers here, you know, were together, right? And so many of those conversations early on were the tough ones, stripping away the hard decisions. And then once we got our footing, then we were able to say, okay, now let's start making changes. Now let's start adding. And as the marketing guy throughout all of that, you know, I was very tuned into what that meant from a brand position and what that meant in the marketplace. And where we got to and what I am fiercely protective of is this meeting point of value and service. And in this industry, when you if, if you accept like the ski magazine rankings as indicative of what really is true, which I, you know, you take them with a grain of salt, but I do think there is a lot of truth to it, especially as expensive as this industry can be. When you look at the top service resorts are the Deer Valleys of the world, the Snow Basins of the world, the Sun Valleys of the world, those places that Aspen, Snowmass, the places that they're going to charge you an arm and a leg and they're not going to apologize for it, right? That's, that's their position in the marketplace and they're going to own it and they're not going to apologize for it. And that's understanding who you are and what you do and they do it, right? And then if you look at the top resorts in the value category and you're you're looking at the other end of the spectrum, right? You're looking at Love One, you're looking at A Basin, you're looking at Targhee, you know, you're looking at some some really cool places to ski, but that don't have any of the bells and whistles of a Beaver Creek or a, a Deer Valley type of an experience. It's almost not even the same experience. Meanwhile, here we are, you know, within the last, I don't know, six, seven, eight years, we've managed to crack the top five in both of those categories in Ski Max. And and that is we're like a unicorn in that way. Targi is an example of one that's actually kind of figuring that out also, or at least has showed up in those rankings in that way. But I, I like to think that that's our special place. And so as I think about where we're going and you know what we're doing and the decisions we're going to make in the next 10, 15 years, at least for now, that's the starting point. What do you think that looks like, Nick? Because I, I think often this is framed as really an either or thing. It's like, okay, you want high speed lifts and nice lodges and great grooming. Well, that's how you get $300 lift tickets. And if you care less about the frills and you're willing to go to Lost Trail, Montana and ride 50 year old lifts and you, cause you just care about the great terrain, then you can have that too, but you really can't have both. But it sounds like you're saying, Yes, you can have both. How do you do that? Yeah, it's a great question because it gets gets harder when you start to think about, okay, how can you have both, right? It's volume. It's how you can have both, right? Mm. If you, but if you're, if you're getting your volume because of your lack of crowds and your perception of lack of crowds, well, those two things don't go very well together, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> so it gets harder and harder, you know, as you get towards the pinpoint there. And so, you know, I, I think how you do it, it goes back to the, you know, that legacy of Dan's and you just, you can't chase bells and whistles. You have to stay very focused. Dave Bird and Kelly Pollack from the National Skiers Association went through this this past fall and they were blown away. You know, they were asking me all these questions about like, 
they didn't know exactly what our ski or visit numbers were, and they didn't know exactly how many employees we had, and they were blown away at the size of this resort, terrain-wise, the relatively few number of employees we have, and the number of ski or visits we're able to service. And it's because we stay very focused on, we don't get distracted by the bells and whistles. Do you think that that's a template that could work elsewhere? And, you know, you, you worked at Killington, which is uh, also a big resort and obviously also leans on volume. So you have some perspective here. Is there something special about Whitefish? Because as you mentioned earlier, it's remote. You know, it's a little bit challenging to get to as compared to, say, you know, Snowbird being 45 minutes from Salt Lake City Airport. So is this, do you think that this is a template that's replicable or, or is it really just this very unique set of factors that you've been able to capitalize on and make the most of at Whitefish because of where it is? I don't like, I want to give us some credit, you know, that, that it's, yeah. you know, something we built on purpose because it, because it is, um, <laughs> Mm-hmm. But I it, obviously it's got its factors, and so I. But I do think that there are some other ski areas that could do this. Maybe not tomorrow, but maybe some of the there are some smaller ski areas that could expand and and maybe look at it with the right investment, be in that zone where they could do you know what we do. But yeah, could like you couldn't. I don't think you could have Whitefish Mountain Resort in Summit County. You know, I guess right. to, to answer it differently, like you, you just need to be overrun. Right, right. Yeah, I, I think you're right, especially in your neighborhood. There are a lot of really big, less developed resorts, and I know the locals want to see them stay that way. But if they had the right investment and the right sort of focus, they they could adopt that model. And, and I'm thinking here of places like uh, maybe Great Divide or Lost Trail, yep. which I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. or Snowball. Montana Snowball. Yeah, or yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. So, all right. Well, you know, it, it's it's an interesting history. And if you, if you go back and for those listeners familiar, Whitefish was known for a long, long time as Big Mountain when it opened in 1947. And it was known as Big Mountain and it's on Big Mountain for 60 years until 2007. And that tracks very nicely to when you and Dan arrived at the resort. So talk about that name change project, Nick. Why did you do it? How did you do it? And what was the reaction like to that? Yeah, so I got here at the tail end of it. It was like the decision was made when I arrived. And the relationship between the resort and the town was not great to begin with, which is interesting because it is such a locally built and supported mountain. There's just some disconnect from communication. But the decision was made based on, you know, a couple of things. Big Mountain, obviously, it's near and dear to people because it's what they knew, the name itself I'm talking about. But the reality is Whitefish is a cool town, you know, it's like, and people love coming here and they always have. And so why, and it's, and it's also kind of a catchy name, right? So, so why take the word big, which is as, as generic a term as you can get in the English language and associate that with, with the resort when you could tie it to something that people have such an affinity for in, in the town of Whitefish and the surrounding area. And there is absolutely truth to the fact that confusion between Big Mountain and Big Sky. It was a real thing. I mean, people absolutely showed up to check into lodging, only to learn that their lodging property was six hours to the south. Ooh. Wow. Yeah. But not that that happened a lot, but it absolutely did happen. There was absolutely, definitely confusion in the marketplace. So that was the, the genuine gist of it was, hey, let's just get a, let's get a little less generic with our name and let's, 
let's tie it to this thing that people have such an affinity for and like this. And so it went over about like a, you know, fart in church, you know, like it was not, it was not well received. And <laughs> I learned pretty quickly, you know, and of course I've been here 10 minutes, you know, we, we I, yeah. I started at end of March, early April of 07, and we announced the name change on June 14th. And mm-hmm. so, I mean, I was okay. instantly the villain, you know, new marketing guy comes to town and changes the name kind of a deal. But, right, but I, right. I learned pretty quick that, that the gaps between the town and the mountain were based in communication and based in trust. And what what had happened over the course of a few years or maybe a decade, I don't know, was just a series of decisions that didn't go in a straight line and didn't make a heck of a lot of sense and never had an explanation behind them. And so the town, the community was always kind of wondering what was next and not really believing what little was said from the mountain in terms of why decisions were being made. And I learned that because we were, I was brand new to the area and we, we hadn't launched our season pass sales for that year. And so the word on the street was that because we hadn't announced the pass sale and the prices that we were gonna just double prices, we're changing the name, we're gonna double prices and we're gonna go in a completely different direction. And I'm like, oh my gosh, it's actually the reason we haven't announced it past prices is because you got a new marketing guy and I'm just trying to figure out how to get to work every day, you know? <laughs> um, I, I learned that lesson. It's like, okay, we just need to communicate with the community and we just need to then do what we said we're going to do. And over the course of a couple of years, that's what we kept doing and that's what we kept talking about. I was like, nope, this is what we're going to do. This is why we're going to do it. They're, we're not hiding anything. And over the course of time, you know, we created this really, really good relationship. And I'm proud of the relationship between the town and the mountain here. It's just based in communication and trust. How much has social media helped that, Nick? Because you came in an, at an interesting time. 2007, social media was there. It hadn't really gelled. It wasn't something everyone necessarily used every day as it is now. How much have those mediums, how much have you leaned on those to help you tell Whitefish's story and to distribute information to the people who are interested in it? You know, I, I'm not a really good social media person. In fact, I've pretty much abandoned all of it at this point myself. But you're, you're right, though. At the, at the time, it was kind of, it hadn't really gelled, and it was kind of a new and different thing. And, you know, we were able to use it, and I'm thinking Facebook in particular, in those early days, you know, when we'd make decisions and, and people would come unglued about something, I would just get on there and respond and just be pretty transparent. No, actually, we're just doing it this way. Here's why. And yeah, we raised the season pass prices 20 bucks. And no, we can't give a local discount because we're, you know, we operate on a forest service permit. You can't give, you know, a 599-37 zip code a, a better deal than you give somebody from somewhere else in the country and just explain a few of those things. And it really, especially early on, social media lended itself to what we were doing because, again, back to one of Dan's things that, you know, we were just very transparent. And it wasn't just internally that we were transparent on things. I have to just share information with the town. You know, and it's like, here's, here's why we're doing it. And it's, so it's a good vehicle for that. Yeah. So you've underseen this revolution or evolution of whitefish over the past 15, 16 years, but you can't really do much unless you have really committed owners. So Talk about this entity, Winter Sports Inc., who owns Whitefish. What can you tell us about them? How are they structured? Who are they? Yeah, so it's at this point, it's a pretty small number of people who own shares in Winter Sports Incorporated. And then it really boils down to just a really small number, like five people that own, you know, most of the shares. And then one person who owns a majority. 
position, and that's Bill Foley, who's, you know, he owns a number of different things, started Fidelity Financial, not the investment company, but the um, title insurance. And so what we have is this board of directors for Winter Sports Incorporated that's a small handful of highly intelligent, highly successful human beings. And they are... They're casual skiers. They're not up here every day skiing, but they understand they understand what they have in the investment here. And they also just understand success. And so they're super helpful and they're wonderful mentors, but they are relatively hands-off. So, you know, we communicate with them, of course, on a monthly basis with reporting and, and things like that. And, you know, when I, when I need to get some questions answered or get some direction on things, they're quick to respond. And, but they're, they've just, once, and again, it's back to trust, you know, once they saw the changes that Dan had started and that we had kind of undertaken over the years, and once they saw them start to take hold, because they're smart and successful businessmen, they understood it immediately. And so they've been very supportive of what we've had going on here. And it's a pretty cool, especially given the makeup of most of the rest of the industries and certainly the, the bigger resorts. I just can't imagine being any, any happier than, than I am here with this ownership. You know, I'm, I'm curious, Nick, and I'll ask you the same question. I asked Sun Valley General Manager Pete Sontag when I had him on the podcast a few months ago. There's not that many large independent ski resorts left. It's almost impossible to build a new one in the United States. So I would imagine a place like Whitefish could probably name its price to Avail or an Altera and walk away. Do you have any insight into the owner's point of view as far as remaining independent and how committed they are to that? Um, I think they are committed to success <laughs> and they've seen that. And I think they're also keenly aware of our position in the marketplace and the opportunity that exists ahead of us. And I also think that they're legacy investors, really. I mean, they're not buy low, sell high type of people. They tend to acquire things and, and hold on to them and feed them and watch them grow, you know, which is exactly they've done with us. And they're certainly giving you the resources to do it. So let's talk about the mountain now, starting with this amazing new lift that you just christened a couple weeks ago, the Snow Ghost Express six pack. Tell us about this lift, Nick, why did you put it in and how has it been received so far? So back to the conversation we were having earlier about needing to grow and then to keep a value proposition, you got to have volume and need to keep growing, but you want to be uncrowded. So how do you do all those things together at once? And you grow in one way and it causes some issues in another way. And so over the years, as we did grow our skier visit numbers and visitation, we learned that we had one really key glaring choke point that was working against our uncrowded reputation. And that was our base lodge. And, you know, we've got chair six that comes out of the base lodge and it's a fixed grip quad. And it's just, it's a beginner lift really is what it is. It services a really cool beginner trail, but it also gets people out of the base lodge, which has kind of become our main portal, both of our parking. And, you know, you had to move up that fixed grip chair to get to our two high-speed quads out of the lift cloth area, chairs one and two. And just that really clearly our pinch point. So we've also always known this mountain is just amazing terrain-wise. It really is. The scheme here is incredible. And if there was ever a knock on the terrain, it was Russell Street, which is just a road that basically cuts horizontally across the mountain and the, the lower quarter of it. And so to access 
east side terrain back 10, 15 years ago, there's some great skiing along the eastern side of the mountain, but inevitably you'd end up on Russell Street on this long run out back to the main church. So that would be Achilles heel from a terrain perspective. So what this high-speed six-pack does is it allows folks to access that eastern side of the mountain easier, quicker, and also ski that eastern side of the mountain and, and get back to a, a viable chairlift without having to that run out. And then obviously it alleviates the pressure of the volume of people, you know, especially in the mornings um, out of the base lodge area. And so when we opened it, it was like instant success from the ladder. You know, like it just, it was like watching a vacuum cleaner. It just sucked people <laughs> out of there, like instantly. 2,200 people an hour, boom, out of the base lodge. It was glorious. And what have the ripple effects been as far as you mentioned chair six out of the base and folks would take that up to one and two. What has that done to traffic, uh, particularly on chair one? And as you said, it drops people on the top of Russell Street. Has it helped to to alleviate or at least calm down lines on chair one and that terrain over there off of Russes? So chair one, and, and I, this is coming, this is not me. This is coming from people, longtime skiers here. They will tell you the longest they've waited in line out chair one since we opened that chair four is four minutes. And, and we did, the day we opened, well, the 20. 9th, 30th, and 31st of December of this year, we, we did over 9,000 skier visits each of those three days. We've never gone over 9,000 on a single day ever before. And we did three, oh, wow. we did three in a row. And wow. the 29th, we didn't have chair four open. And so chair one was, I mean, it was under pressure. And then the 30th, we opened chair four. And all of a sudden, you're three, four minute line at chair one and you're doing record number of skier visits. It was crazy. Instant success. And we do, we track everything, right? We're, we're a little nutty with our data, but we scan every chair left. We scan every skier on every chair. And so we know the scan numbers. We're already looking at where is this creative pressure or is it taking pressure away? You know, what's happening? And it's taken a huge chunk off of chair one for sure. Chair six is interestingly, it's the ridership is down a little bit, the scan numbers, but not tremendously so. And it's taken a lot of pressure off chair seven off the north side of our mountain also. Um, I should add that one of the things that as we got closer to launching chair four, I kept getting more and more excited about what it was going to do to chair six and what it was going to do for our beginner skiers and our young families. And it's that part is working too. So people are still riding chair six, but it's beginners, it's young families. And we were able to take that chair and like just a simple thing, we reduced the grade on the unload ramp of that chair. Before we had to just keep cranking people off that thing. And, uh, and it, it was hard for beginners to unload. And now we can we can run it slower. We reduce the angle of grade getting off of it so that people aren't falling, get, you know, getting off of it. And we returned that chipmunk, we call it chipmunk slope, underneath that chair to really just be a ski school area. And it's just been awesome. So let's, let's talk about the name, Nick, Snow Ghost Express. I, I just love that name. I, I threw a little Twitter poll up the other day to ask the best new chairlift name of 2022. And that one won in a landslide, which... Is no surprise given how evocative that is of a, a very prominent feature of the mountain. But just talk about that name. How did you come up with it, and and how has that been received so far? Uh, you know, we came up with that name because it, where that chairlift terminates is at the top, kind of the top of Ptarmigan Bowl, almost to the summit of the mountain, and uh, it is it tends to be a zone where you know our snow ghosts become most prominent. And so it was a pretty easy name to come up with because it is cool and fun. And I laughed from the get-go when I got here because everybody's like, 
snowboats. Oh, what do you think of the snowboats? And aren't the snowboats cool? And isn't it so neat that we have this unique thing called snowboats? And I'm like, you guys need to realize that's not that unique. Just in the East Coast, they call it ice ride. <laughs> um, but uh, but anyways, it's neat and it's cool and people do love it. But it is the zone of the mountain that really can accumulate that look and feel on those trees. So it was a pretty easy name to come up with. So beautiful lift. All the reviews I've heard from folks skiing through there have said that it's just tremendous. I plan on making a trip there later this season myself. But you did go with the basic model, no bubbles, no heated seats. Talk about those decisions or those features you considered. And why did you decide to just go with the basic chairs? So you just teed me up for the greatest marketing line I came up with in my entire career. And that's that in Whitefish, we like our six packs cold. <laughs> But it go, it's it's just back to what what we've been talking about over and over here today is, you know, we came up with a plan to address a need that we had to get people out of the base lodge and a desire that we had to spread people out on the mountain more. And we knew we needed a detachable chair and a quad probably would have done the trick to get out of the gate, but it might not have set us up for future growth the way that the six pack does. And there was some forethought to it, but there was also some reaction to it in solving a problem. But going that extra step with the heated seats and the bubble and those kinds of amenities, that's not who we are. And that's not how we make decisions. And so if you want to stay in that value and service continuum where I am hell-bent on us staying, you don't put the bells and whistles on a It's function over form, I guess. Is that the right way to say it? Function over fashion, anyway. <laughs> You know, the new six pack is amazing. Looking around the rest of the mountain, I'm sure you're already thinking about the next project. You have a huge lift fleet there. What is your wish list, Nick, as you survey the mountain long term? Where do you see potential for upgrades, replacements, additions? You know, we we operate on partially on forest service land. So the top two thirds of the mountain are forest service property. And the bottom third is privately owned. And I'm being kind of loose with the numbers there, but roughly. So the reality is that, you know, our permit kind of is what it is, but our permit does extend to Hellroaring Peak, which it's an easy walk to get to the top of Hellroaring Peak, but we don't have a lift that goes there. So really in terms of expanding terrain, that's, that's about the only thing we could do. And a few years ago when we embarked on our Hellroaring Improvement Project, our Hellroaring Basin Improvement Project, and we cut some trails and then we moved the chair that services that terrain and gets people out of it, I should say. We started the clock ticking on a five-year clock. So it started ticking when we first started cutting trails back in there a few years ago. And approved in that project was a lift going out of what we call Grand Junction, which is now where the bottom of the Hellroy chair is that goes back to the front side of the mountain. It approved in that project was a, another chair starting in the same place, but going kind of the opposite direction up, up to Hellroy Peak. So that's on our list. It won't happen within that five-year window of when we started because that would be like two and a half years from now, and we're just not going to be in a position to do that. But we've got a wonderful relationship with the, our Forest Service here, and I'm confident that it won't take much to extend that part of the, that project should we choose to do it. But I, I hesitate to even put a number on it, but that's a three, four, five years away, probably closer to five. And then, you know, we just have other, like any place, we've got infrastructure that's aging that we need to kind of keep an eye on from a lift perspective and we're pretty good at our lift maintenance crew is amazing at keeping chairs running and that's actually i think one of our strengths is that crew but also you know we're good at moving chairs we've got a pretty good history of like moving chair eight and we moved chair five off the front front face of tarling and bowl and over into east rim and that helped a few years ago 
to circulate some people around. And, you know, we bought a used chair from Kimberly and brought it down and put it on Flower Point. Heck, my first summer here is when we bought a new chair one and we took the old chair one and made it the new chair two. So we've got a pretty good track record of making those kinds of changes. So, you know, I, without revealing too much, I've got some thoughts there and how we could maybe move some things around or, or upgrade one thing and maybe move and get that Hellwarm lift done at some point. But we're out five, 10 years on those kinds of decisions or at least making efforts there. But the bigger thing for us is back to the crowding thing. It's like, okay, you know, this mountain at 3,000 acres, it can suck skiers up and they can disappear. And with our lift infrastructure where it's at right now, certainly it does that. But facilities matter and parking lots matter and roads matter. And, and so that's kind of where we're focused on next is, you know, what, where are these people going to eat lunch and where are they going to park the car? You know, how are they going to get off the mountain at the end of the day? And those are the challenges we're looking at right now. So talk about the potential back on Hell Roaring Peak, Nick. What kind of acreage is back there? What kind of terrain? And what, what would be the vertical drop from Grand Junction up to the top there? Oh, man, that's a great question that I don't have a good answer to. <laughs> it really doesn't add that much to what we already ski. But it's, it'd be advanced terrain, but not sheets and cliffs. It's pretty cool. It's almost would be more like an ungroomed blue-black grade that comes off the Hellroaring Peak and just drops back down in there. The real advantage is just that it continues to add to the ability for people to spread around. So talk about Chair 8 a little bit. When you you mentioned you moved that, uh, it used to be on the Purgatory Run, which is gone now. Chair 8 goes up and, and drops off at Tony Matt. Talk about the decision to put it there rather than putting the lift up Glory Hole or maybe somewhere else where skiers could lap that terrain from the summit. So that's a good question, and it's, and it's a question we get a lot with Chair 4, too. It's like, why didn't you take Chair 4 to the top? And we did talk about, when we were planning that the Hellwine Basin Improvement Project, we did talk about taking Chair 8 and taking it to the summit. And the reality is our summit is a very busy place. It has two high-speed quads that drop off at the summit. And on any given day, heck, on any run-of-mill Tuesday, it feels busy up there. So even adding a, a fixed-grip triple into that mix seemed like, hmm, maybe not. And plus, that would be a really long chair ride. But the thought of 2,200 people an hour, the back capacity off of a six-pack coming up all the way up there, there's just, we didn't have, we don't have the footprint, but we certainly don't have the footprint for adding that many more bodies up there. So that's what drove those conversations. You know, the the location we picked for chair eight, I'll admit I was a little hesitant. I bought in, you know, I knew, you know, I was in the conversations from the get-go about where we were going to terminate that chair they're at kind of at the junction of where Bigger Green and Tony Matt's put off, which are two very popular runs, and it drops people right down into the middle of them. But it drops them in a spot where you are, if you're skiing down off the summit, it's fairly flat before you get to that top of that chair. So people aren't carrying a ton of speed coming off of that. And we were just very careful with signage and lighting and how we set that up to make sure we weren't putting anybody in harm's way. But I was still a little nervous about that, but it's worked great. People have skied through there without any difficulty at all. It's, and it's kind of fun. You just, are you going right or left of the chair and you kind of zip around it and you go under it and it's, it's worked out great. So before you moved Chair 8 to its current location, it sat on a run that was called Purgatory, as I mentioned. The top half of that run looks as though it's still skiable, but the bottom half is outside of your resort boundary. Why did you eliminate that run and the traverse runs that go out of it at the bottom there? Was that some kind of forest service swap? Was there a different reason? And and can people still ski that if they want to? 
So I'll answer the second part of that question first. You know, we have an open boundary policy, so people can ski it all they want. They just if if they get down too far down that old purgatory run below that traverse we referenced, they can't get back to the bottom of the new cherry. So that's what we've done is we took out this crazy long run out that used to take people down to where cherry started. We just eliminated that section, which was a drainage, so it had water moving through it, and it was very low elevation, and so it was a real problematic part of the mountain. You know, it was hard to get open early season just because of low elevation and water flowing, and then it was very quickly and easily skied off, and so it just created this kind of racetrack down there that there was no point to. So the kind of sacrificing purgatory seemed like a pretty small trade-off to get that lift in a better location for more skiers. So that was the thought process there. I mean, people can, get, like I said, open boundary policy, so people can go wherever they want. you got to be aware of what you're doing so you end up near a chair when you're done. So similar question on the other side of the mountain. In 2017, you took the old chair five and moved it over to East Rim. So I, I, this is really a two-parter. So the, the first part is really same question, why it goes where it goes rather than up through North Pole, ba- North Pole face. And I imagine you'll, you'll say the same thing. It, you, know, you just didn't want to overcrowd the summit. And the second part is really the old chair four skiing down to the old chair five kind of mimicked the snow ghost line. And that's that's uh, what you achieve now with one lift. It used to take two. So when you move that, did you have, were you just kind of setting up snow ghost? Did you know this was coming? And the second part is why did you end up putting chair five where you did and how has that worked out for you? The thought was, I won't say it teed up snow ghost because we actually were considering just taking the old chair four and extending it back up to the inspiration Ridge where it actually used to go. And so in that case, you could have taken chair, in the case that like chair one went down, you could have taken chair, if we just extended the old chair four, you could have taken that up and skied down to chair, the new chair five, taken that up and down to seven and have that be your alternate route back to the summit. So a lot of those decisions were made with that in mind, like how do we, should something happen to chair one, let's not lose the entire mountain. And obviously you take some risks in there with a year or two, start making these big changes. But chair five was just, we utilized it couple times a year. So it was not a necessary chair and we were trying to create pod. So that was the flower point move or the flower point addition was really the first move we made towards creating pods of skiing. And then, and that worked, right? You can go all the way over to flower point and you can lap that chair all day if you want. The skiing's amazing and you don't ever have to go back to chair one if you don't want to. And then like I talked about earlier, you know, like the east side, the front side of the mountain to the east, is where chair five is now and so what the thought process there was well let's move it over there so you know you can see that east rim terrain and that stuff without having to take Russell street out granted it's a little circuitous you know when you want to get out of there you're either on Russell street to get out or you're kind of going back to seven and then up and out but so that was the goal with those and, and then same thing with hell Lord. how do we create pods of skiing to take pressure off other parts of the mountain you know chair one specifically so so that's really what Chair 5 was just part of that kind of longer thinking about those pods. But what, it's sorry to belabor this, but what that did that we didn't necessarily plan on and what was really a cool byproduct of that was Chair 5, the bottom of that sits in a pretty good spot for early season skiing. And so between, you know, in a year where not like this year, like this year was great. We were able to open 80% of the mountain on day one and just run from there. You know, most years, you got to take chair one up and then ski the, the north side of the mountain and then download at the end of the day. And what chair five ended up doing is between chair seven, chair five, 
flower point chair and we've got a t-bar over in that zone all of a sudden we've got a pretty big zone and a low snow year you know a low start year we've got a cool higher elevation little mini mountain to itself where yes it might still involve downloading chill at the end of the day but it's a lot of skiing that we can offer early season when we don't have to have snow yeah, are there other places on the mountain, Nick, where you think you could create pods? I'm, I'm looking here at Expressway up to the that bend in Inspiration between Upper Langley and, and uh, Elephant's Graveyard. Have you thought about other places on the mountain where that philosophy might work? I think we're there. With Chair 4 now, specifically accessing that terrain you're talking about and that people are can and far lapping back through Chair 4, with it, like you really have that covered now. And so, again, I think it's back to, it would be that hell Warring Peak chair because that really would, you know, that would create a, a pod of skiing back there that it would take you a long time to get back to the top of the mountain at that point. All right, back to the bottom here. Bad Rock is not operating this year from my understanding. Is there something wrong with it? Is that on its way out? What's going on with Bad Rock? Well, Bad Rock is, is kind of, at first we were thinking as soon as we get chair four, Bad Rock would be a moot point in the wintertime. You never know. Right now, it is proving to be that something we don't need um, in the winter, just because we we are handling the crowds down there so well with the with snow ghost. But what Bad Rock really first and foremost is now is a summer chair. So we still use Bad Rock to access our zipline tours, and we have we also use it as a kind of a lower level bike park chair. So we've got some bike trails down there, and it allows us to connect the rest of our bike trail network into the base lodge. So. It's pretty handy from a summer perspective, for sure. And I think we'll have, as we grow our ski school business, and just generally speaking, skier visits, Chair 10 could certainly come back online in the wintertime at some point. But it's it just right now, it's just, it wouldn't serve a purpose. How about Tenderfoot? That's your oldest chair, a 1975 Diogel Triple. Looks mostly like a park chair. You have the Heritage T-Bar right next door, a fairly old model as well. What are your thoughts for that corner of the resort? Any upgrade plans over there? Did my 15-year-old park rat child put you up to that question? <laughs> what would he say? Oh, yeah. He, he wants a rope toe over there. Why don't we have a high okay. chair over there? Um, we don't have any current plans for chair three. Um, and that, that Heritage T-Bar really is only used by the race program, which actually not even us. It's a local foundation that, that we run that for, um, or with, I guess I should say, because it accesses some, some good race training terrain. You know, we, we have talked about reorienting chair three, just take it, maybe take it to a different location um, up where the old half pipe used to be. We talked about that a little bit because it would, could potentially make for a bigger terrain park, just a little bit of unused terrain in that kind of where the old half pipe was and what's called Ranger Trail. Now there's some underutilized terrain, but that's not top of our list at the moment. All right, Nick, let's finish up today with a conversation on lift tickets and passes. You know, you and I had a really good conversation about a year and a half ago now about lift ticket prices and why Whitefish keeps them so low. And and when I say low, your one day adult lift ticket rate is $94 for the 2022 to 23 ski season. That is about 40% at the most of what's other mountains in the country your size are in general charging. And they're often over $250 a day. As I said, we discussed this for an article that I wrote a while ago, but I, I think it's re- worth rehashing on the podcast for anyone who may have missed that, or I, I really think it's something you can't say enough. So talk about your lift ticket pricing philosophy at Whitefish and why you set the price 
the way you have. And I know you touched on this earlier in the discussion on value, but just talk about how that manifests itself specifically in what it costs you to get on a chairlift in the morning. Well, you know, I think it does a couple of things and I, I haven't paid, you know, too close attention to what some of those other ski areas are doing discount wise off of that lift ticket. But it's just, it it's all a game, right? In terms of what the Epic and Icon Pass, you know, has done to the industry and it's almost rendering the windows, the tickets extinct in a lot of ways. Because what they, and we're seeing some of that here too, you know, we're like, we now sell a season pass in every state in the country. And I think people look at, and I mean, there's a couple states where literally we sell a season pass, but we can, we can, <laughs> we can make that claim. But, um, that's amazing. But they've just reoriented the consumer's mind to say, listen, if, even if all you're doing is going for spring break for five days somewhere, it makes sense to buy a pack. We just don't discount off of it like others do off of that kind of lead window rate. We, we do obviously do some discounting off of that, and, you know, online sales and, and whatnot. But we're not quite all the way to that dynamic where it, it makes no sense. But it's just about being approachable. It's just about being truly providing a value and making sure people, but it's funny, the products that people come in and look at that are in industry insiders who either come to work for us recently or just come to check out what we've got going on. It's more things like seasonal lockers being 350 bucks, you know, and things like that where they're like, what on earth are you doing? You could charge three times that, you know? And it's like, yeah, but then our local skiers would, sure, they'd still come, but they'd hate us and they wouldn't speak nicely of us around town and they wouldn't invite their friends and family to come maybe. And so at the end of the day, it's just about making I mean, we're a business and we got to make money and we got to keep, we got to keep an eye on our margins and we got to, you know, do that. But we also want to drive volume and we want people to feel good about it. And I, I always come back to the marketing guy. I always come back to the whole adage of way easier to retain a guest than it is to go find a new one. And so it's that loyalty and that that has facilitated so much of our, you know, success and growth. And so that we're protective of that. So, so talk about that volume to the extent that you're able to, Nick. When we spoke in 2021, you noted that under your tenure, starting in 2007, the skier visits, annual skier visits to Whitefish had gone from 300,000 to 450,000. What can you, and, and that, that number was for the 2020 to 21 ski season. So we, we spoke right before the 21 to 22 ski season started. What can you tell us about how last year built on that? And I, you, you touched on this earlier, the momentum you're already seeing for 2022 to 23. Yeah. So last year we set a new record. We were just under 470. Wow. In total, congratulations! Yeah, thank you. And you know, this year is on a pace to surpass that. Even you know, granted, there's a lot of season left, um, a lot of things that can go right, a lot of things that can not go right in that time. But so we are growing. It's interesting because we're seven consecutive years of a record number of season passes sold uh, in my time here since since '07. We've essentially doubled the number of pass holders we have. In you know this area is growing. The you know Flathead Valley in Montana is growing. Our county is growing rapidly, and so you know we're getting our share of growth in the area. But what's interesting is last year in particular, where we set a record, a new record for total number of skiers. It's, it was our paid skier visit that kind of carried the load. So we set a record for paid skier visits, and as many pass holders as we had, we we were certainly had a good year pass holder wise, but it wasn't a record year. But the paid skier visits is what kind of helped drive that a little bit. And we've got a very healthy split between those paper tickets and the pass visits. We're at 60-40 kind of any given year, um, although it has leaned more towards the pass holders, but still very healthy destination visitation also. So we're seeing good, solid growth. 
So it sounds like you're on a great trajectory and one that you're really happy with. And you're introducing more capacity to be able to handle that volume, particularly with this new chair that we've been discussing. Whitefish is the the largest remaining U.S. holdout from the major multi-mountain ski passes. So what's your current thinking here, Nick, on joining Indie Mountain Collective, Icon, Epic? I imagine you have an open invitation to anyone you want. Is this something you're considering or are you just sitting this out and, and happy with that? Uh, we are currently sitting this out and we're happy with that, to answer directly. Um, <laughs> I will say, you know, like Doug from the Indie Pass, Doug Fish, he, he, he came to us pretty early on when he was just trying to figure out if he had a product. And I talked to him maybe twice a year and I love what they're doing. I just think that's such a cool product. And I love it. It just right away, I felt like it wasn't a good fit for us. And I explained that to him. And, you know, we've, all, we've always had really good conversations. But at the end of the day, what it boils down to is just because we are seeing the growth we're seeing, I think it's smarter that we grow on our own merits while we can and not on the merits of another product or another ski area's product or pass or anything like that. And why grow on the merits of somebody else when you can grow on your own you know, brand? Well, if it's not broke, don't fix it. And it sounds like everything is working just fine at Whitefish. Nick, I cannot thank you enough for your time today, particularly right in the heart of ski season. I am really looking forward to getting out there in April and hopefully making some turns with you. So thank you very much for your time today. I appreciate it. I wish you the best of luck with the rest of the ski season. Thank you very much. My pleasure. That's Nick Columbus president of Whitefish Mountain Resort. Nick, much respect in a ski industry that is increasingly losing its mind and forgetting the curious walk-up skiers who built the thing. You're doing all of us a tremendous service by keeping this dangerously extinct model alive. So thank you very much for that, Nick. I am sorry it took me so long to turn that one around. Thank you all very much for listening. Now, get yourselves to Whitefish ASAP. And while you're on the way, throw on some more Storm Skiing Podcasts. I have episodes recorded with Saddleback General Manager Jim Quimby and Whitecap owner David Jubin. And I have lots more on the books. Confirmed podcast guests include the leaders of Heavenly, Breckenridge, Deer Valley, Banff, Sun Peaks, Stevens Pass, Dartmouth Skiway, China Peak, and Timberline, West Virginia. Remember, the very best way to get those episodes as soon as they're live is to subscribe to the Storm Skiing newsletter at stormskiing.com. New pods appear in your email box several hours before syncing with the podcast services, including Apple and Spotify. There are free and paid tiers of the newsletter, and paid subscribers receive podcasts three days before everyone else. You can also follow the Storm on Twitter and Instagram at StormSkiJournal. Until next time, stay well, stay safe, I'm Stuart Winchester, and I will talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.